So I have my snowy Sabbath shirt on. I don't get to wear flannel all that often, so that's kind of fun. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think we're two for two. I guess we've been here three Thanksgivings. At least two for two on the last Thanksgivings on white Thanksgivings. So haven't had as many white Christmases, but uh, it's been crazy how, how that happens. But since we're uh, from Florida, I guess anything like this is a little crazy. Speaking of that, um, I was texting this morning with my good friend Patty Hofer, who for years was on the staff at the Forest Lake Church. And every now and then when it snows, I sent her pictures and she said she was going to watch today. So I have to say hi to Patty. So hi to Patty. And uh, just, you know, that's part of the fun of, of being involved in church life and participating in community is the, the friends you make and the people you know and you see in other places. I mean, think about uh, all the things that uh, Pastor Japheth has done through the years and all the connections he's got around the world. It's a blessing, isn't it, uh, that, that God has given us this, this community and this fellowship, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful today to be in this place. I'm thankful for crazy stories like the first time I met Pastor Molly was completely in another state in a different church, and my first thought was really be fun to have her on a staff someday, and here we are halfway across the country, and yeah, just amazing how, how the Lord works in our lives and, and uh, brings us around and together. I want to say a special thank you for the commitment to uh, Jared and Danny Stafford today making it here from Estes Park uh, on a day that, I mean, when I went to bed last night, it wasn't supposed to snow this much. So I appreciate you having that kind of flexibility to realize what was going on and still get out and make it here early to be ready and practiced up and everything. Uh, I just appreciate the commitment that we see in the different folks in this community uh, to keep this church going and doing what we're doing. I want to talk about the schedule really quick coming up. So we have officially entered into the season of feasting. It starts with Thanksgiving and it goes through New Year's. So uh, as, uh, as we heard in the children's story, we're going to be looking for the good in everything from here on through the end of the year. And, uh, um, but so in, in these weeks going up, so we're, we've got kind of a Thanksgiving into Christmas focus today. And then we'll be focused on, uh, on, on Christmas, or, or, or as Japheth would say, Advent. Is that right? Yeah, Advent. That's the British way. So uh, we'll be focused on that. And I mention him particularly because he's going to be our speaker December 9. So this is a pretty big deal. This is the first time since I've been here that he's been willing to do this. So, so I'm very much looking forward to that. He'll be our speaker on the 9th. We had talked at one point of having a communion on December 2, but because of some scheduling things, we've decided to move that to the 16th. So we'll have a Christmas communion. That should be fun. We'll do that on the 16th. Uh, and then uh, also on the 9th, and Peter will mention this again later on, uh, we're going to do something special during our uh, Connect Group time. You can still meet with your Connect Group if you want. But we're going to have, uh, we're inviting everybody to participate here in the sanctuary during that time for just a time to sing some Christmas carols. You know, we don't always get a chance to do that. So uh, uh, Matt and Kensley have agreed to lead out in this and uh, help us make this happen. And we'll just come in here and, and we'll be able to sing all your favorite 
well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of your favorite Christmas songs here uh, in just a time to sing together. So, all right, I think that was everything I needed to mention. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for, uh, for this season, uh, for all that you have blessed our lives with. I know our lives are not just, uh, just one easy thing to the next. But we have so much to be thankful for, and I'm thankful that we are in this place today and that we can gather together with brothers and sisters and people that we love, and that your spirit, that you have promised your spirit to those who believe. And today, Lord, as we reflect on the reason for our great hope and the deepest reason we have for Thanksgiving, I pray, Lord, that uh, you will speak to us and that we will, in this time, recognize just how amazing this gift is, and, uh, and truly be thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for today, we're, we're going to walk through one chapter in the Bible. But it's a very important chapter, and if you want to take out a Bible and turn to it, we'll, we will have text on the screen, but if, but if you want to go there, there won't be a lot of turning. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is a chapter you need to know. You need to know what this chapter says. Because it's very important to the reality of our faith. So we're just today, that's, that's all we're going to do. We're just going to walk through this chapter. And I'll make some comments as we go along. And hopefully by the end, this is written by the Apostle Paul. What he says at the end, hope, hopefully this will be our experience. So let's start. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it starts with these words. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters. Now anytime somebody says, I would remind you, usually they're talking about something pretty important. Something that's been mentioned before, but it has a tendency sometimes that we lose sight of it. So, so I want to remind you of it because this is important. There's a there's one of the Ten Commandments that starts like that. You remember that? It says, remember the Sabbath day. It's a reminder. So here we go again. We have a reminder. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, so he threw a bunch of clauses on top of each other here. So let's unpack that briefly. First of all, the gospel that I preach to you. All of us that have faith in Jesus were told about Jesus by someone or something. That something could have been the Bible. You could have picked up a Bible and read it on your own. But the most common way in which we learn about Jesus is someone tells us. Many of us, if not most of us, are told about Jesus when we're children. Some are not told until they're older, but someone tells the good news. We hear it. So he says, the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now that's the second step of this. Someone's got to tell it, but then you've got to receive it. You've got to hear it, and you've got to believe it and receive it into your life. So you hear it, someone tells, 
You receive it, you receive the good news, and then in which you stand. Then you, then you arrange your life around the reality of the gospel. Somebody tells you, you hear it, you receive it, then you rethink your life to where now I stand on the foundation of Jesus and that is the deepest reality about my life in which you stand and then the next part and by which you are being saved this is the good news that saves you saves you from what well a lot of things and we're gonna particularly focus on one here in this chapter in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So, so part of this, we, we hear it, we receive it, we reorder our lives, we stand in it, and we stay there. We don't wander off. Now that's what the lost sheep does. And we could spend some time on that. The lost sheep has that problem where he wanders off and Jesus has to go and grab him and bring him back. But we're best off if we stay there and not believe in vain. So let's go on. He mentioned the gospel, and we could break that into a lot of pieces. But, but let's hear what Paul has to say specifically related to this. What did he tell them? Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Okay, so inherent in that concept is that he told them a lot of stuff. But one thing was of first importance in what he said. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul's saying, I told you, but somebody told me. This is how this thing works. You're told and then you tell. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is. Here is what is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared. Now I'm going to stop right there because he's going to start talking about who he appeared to. But I want you to catch what is of first importance about the gospel. Yeah, there's a lot of things about the gospel. There's a lot of teaching. There's, there's morality, there's, there's ways that we should live, but all of those things are of second, third, fourth, and fifth importance. What is of first importance is that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture, He was buried, He was raised on the third day, and people saw Him. So according to Paul, this is the most important part of the good news. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the good news. And he says, verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, so that's actually kind of an interesting way to say that, because at the point he appears to them, they're actually only the eleven, but, but let's not get too technical with that. We know what he's talking about. Then he appeared to more, more than 500 of the brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now this actually goes back to something we talked about before. You remember how we talked about before? There are the disciples of Jesus, and then there are the 12. 
and that the 12 were called to be for to a specific purpose but there were many more than that who were referred to as disciples and in that context we are disciples if if we choose to follow Jesus and 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 be disciplined to live according to what he has taught us then we are disciples as well so he appeared to the 12 but then he also appeared to 500 and then verse 7 then he appeared to James this is an interesting inclusion here because sometimes when we we hear James in the New Testament we're inclined to think of James who was one of the 12 but the truth is the James who was one of the 12 according to the book of Acts is the first of the 12 to be killed he actually dies very early on in the story and it's kind of ironic because his brother John ends up being the last of the 12 James is the first one of those to die but another James arises in the church that's of significance and he's referred to as the Lord's brother so we've come to understand this as one of Jesus's brothers who became prominent in the church later on which is significant because through a lot of the story of Jesus his brothers are not putting their faith in him but apparently one of them does and he becomes significant so so if this was referring to James who was one of the 12 it would be redundant to mention this wouldn't it because he already said he appeared to the 12 so this is another James so he appeared to James then to all the Apostles that's interesting that suggests that there were quite a few other people who were called Apostles which is sent with a message that Jesus appeared to and there's nothing here to say for sure that didn't include some women as well I mean for sure one thing we know for sure is the very first person who went with the message that Jesus is raised from the dead was Mary of Magdala she was sent to the Apostles to tell them I saw Jesus he's alive so hang on to that one and then verse 8 last of all as to one untimely born Jesus appeared also to me so Paul says yes Jesus appeared to me but when did Jesus appear to Paul it wasn't immediately after he was raised was it because shortly after he was raised Paul became a persecutor of the church and it's not until Paul is on the way to Damascus that he sees the bright light he falls off his mount and Jesus appears to him he says who are you Lord I am Jesus who you are persecuting so Jesus did appear in resurrected form to Paul but not like the others that's why he refers to himself as one untimely born so I was born into this Apostle family but not like the others who actually saw Jesus and believed in him when he was here I didn't see and believe until later that should also give us hope and courage because we don't have to have seen him when he was first here to still be his people to still be sent with his message we too can be untimely born if you if you like he goes on verse 9 for I am the least of the Apostles unworthy to be called an Apostle because I persecuted the Church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary I worked harder than any of them 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. It's interesting how true that is sometimes. The person that seems the farthest away, the most difficult, the most impossible, when the Lord finally gets through to them, how hard they work, how faithfully they labor for the Lord. And this is one of the reasons we don't give up. This is one of the reasons we continue to pray for those, even those that seem far away, because we do not know what might come of, of their lives. If you'll remember, after, after Paul sees the vision, and then he can't see, he's blinded for a little while, uh, Jesus comes to Ananias, a man in Damascus, and says, go and pray for, for Saul, he was still called Saul in those days, uh, that he might receive his sight, for he is praying. And do you remember Ananias' response? He says, I know about this guy. This is a bad guy. But Jesus says to him, go and do what I told you, because you must show him what he must suffer for my sake. And Ananias goes and prays, and he receives his sight. And I'm sure Ananias did a lot of great things the rest of his life, but he didn't do what Paul did. So, so let's be faithful, because we never know for sure what will happen, what the Lord will do. You see, Jesus is the one that qualifies us when he calls us, when he calls us to a ministry. Now, we can make decisions that can ultimately disqualify us from certain things, but God can make good even out of the messes we create. So don't give up. Keep going. You never know what the Lord will do. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed... Now he's, he's getting into his argument here. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now for us, this concept of resurrection from the dead is not new, even though uh, in, in a general sense most of us have not seen it. Uh, we saw it in a rather miraculous way in the context of the story Elisa shared a few weeks ago in the life of our son Nathan, who, who was uh, practically dead, yet somehow came back, restored. But I don't think any of us have seen after three days kind of resurrections in our life. But, but we have a context here at least to know of this. Paul is addressing a different reality because there was a whole section of Judaism that didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in this. And in fact, there's that point where they question Jesus about the man who marries a woman and then he dies and his brother marries her and then the all seven brothers, finally they all die and they think they're really going to get him with the clincher. They say, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, it's just such a dumb question, but that's the games we play, right? And Jesus just kind of dismisses them. He says, yeah, you err because you don't understand Scripture. And so there was that whole group in Judaism that wasn't looking for the resurrection. And then there was the whole reality of the Greeks and their system where, where there was this idea that, that the body itself was corrupt and it was the spirit that was that was good, and the whole idea of a resurrected body was ridiculous. If you remember, when Paul goes to Mars Hill in the city of Athens, 
and he talks to them about the unknown God that they worship. He goes on and on, and they're listening really well to his presentation until he says Jesus was raised from the dead. When he mentions resurrection, they say, this man is crazy. So there was a whole part of the Greek world and even a part of the Jewish world that was hostile to the idea of resurrection. But Paul is saying this is central to the faith. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is of first importance to the gospel. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see how central this is to the whole of what Paul has to say to us? This idea that, of the resurrection of Jesus being the consummation of the fullness of the reality of the forgiveness of our sins and our restoration. He's saying if none of this happened, then you're wasting your time believing It is a little unfortunate, I think, that sometimes we, uh, as an Adventist church, have, have had an insufficient emphasis on the resurrection and its role, and how it seals the deal of salvation. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that is, and I don't want to beat us up for that. There, there's a lot of reasons on it, but, but we need to embrace the fullness. It's not the life and the death of Jesus. It's the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus in which we have hope. So that's got to stay in the front because of what he's saying here. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Now this stands in contrast to the views of some who, who try to limit the importance of Jesus to that of a moral teacher. But if all you got from Jesus is moral teacher, according to Paul, you are to be most pitied. Because there is so much more in what he's accomplished than coming and teaching some things. Yeah, the teachings are very important. But they are second, third, fourth, and fifth. The first importance of the gospel is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. What he has accomplished. What he has done. Where we put our faith. Where we stand. Verse 20. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what follows here is very important theology. Verse 21, for as, by, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
shall all be made alive. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, you did not choose your mortal existence. First of all, you didn't choose to exist. That's just something that happened. Secondly, you didn't choose to exist in a way that you would live three score and ten or however many it is and then your life would come to an end. You didn't choose that either. So none of that you chose. You were born to all of these things as a descendant of Adam. But you can choose an eternal existence if you will become a descendant of Christ. So that's what he's saying here. He's saying that for by a man came death, but by a man comes also the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Then verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So here's the order of resurrection. Jesus is resurrected first to this eternal life. Now, Jesus was not the first person raised from the dead in the history of the Bible. We have some Old Testament stories where this happens. But none of them were raised to an eternal life, except maybe we can make the exception of Moses, who it seems was raised and taken up to be with God. And then, of course, we have Enoch and Elijah, who were taken up before they died. But those are the only ones still living that we know of from that period before Christ. So, so the resurrection that is in Christ, he is the first one to rise and not later die again. So you think about the story of, of Lazarus. Okay, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? He's not still here, right? Pretty sure we'd know if he was still around. You know, it was like, uh, I, did, I think, did you say this the other day? Lazarus reached a point in his life where he said, oh, this feels familiar. And when he died the second time, most of us don't have that privilege of knowing what that's like. But, so, but he's still waiting for this resurrection to come. And here is the order of that resurrection to eternal life. First, Jesus, and then... Well, let's read it here. But each in his own order, verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Jesus is raised first, then comes this span of years, and then when Jesus comes again, the dead in Christ are raised to eternal life. So here's what we have to do. We have to hold on to the faith, we have to trust, and we have to wait. That's how it works. Verse 24, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now I want to suggest to you there's a massive connection here between this verse, verse 24, and what I told you about Daniel chapter 2. Remember when we talked about Daniel chapter 2 just a couple weeks ago? The image of the, of the eternal history of the world. And you had these four kingdoms and then the mixed kingdoms. And then 
from nowhere, seemingly, a stone cut without hands hits the image on the feet, crushes all of that human experience history, it gets blown away, and the stone grows to fill the world. We talked about that stone is the kingdom of God that Jesus rules over. Well, that's what Paul is saying. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God after destroying every rule and power and authority. So he crushes all of the rest of that. It blows away. And the kingdom then, in its fullness, is given to God the Father. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus has overcome death. But death itself has not yet been destroyed. It will not be destroyed until this point at the end. So there is an order to all of this. Now, verse 27, for God has put all things in subjugation under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjugation, it is plain that God is accepted who put all things in subjugation under Jesus. When all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things in subjugation under him that God may be all and in all. That's kind of an interesting little inclusion section there. And we can kind of get off on that and, and going in circles back and forth. But I think what we need to understand here, when you get a little something like that, that, that seems a funny detail to the larger argument that's being made, because that, that point is not actually relevant to the larger argument that Paul is making, that what is generally taking place when you see an inclusion like that is that Paul is addressing a relevant issue to his day. Not so much something highly important to us at this point. You see, I don't think there are too many of you out there that are confused in thinking, oh, Paul is saying that Jesus is greater than God. Did anybody think that when I read that first part? It doesn't even occur to us. It's not an argument we have. But apparently there was some argument going on in that day, and he's attempting to address it with this little inclusion here. That's what's funny about when you go back and you read the old Christian creeds. They have all this funny language, this, this statement and this statement and this statement and this statement. And we're like, wow, isn't that a little over the top? Well, the reason the creeds were developed is they were developed in the midst of theological argument. And when one side finally won the argument, they put their language in there. And it was these crazy little detailed arguments, just so you know, we're not the first believers to have silly arguments. And they find their way into the creeds. And we're kind of doing some of that ourselves now, where we're, we're starting to write our arguments into our, into our fundamental beliefs. Not really the best idea. But nonetheless, it's what happens. Even Paul wrote it into the scripture here. Because then we get this, this crazy verse that comes next, verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Yeah, what do they mean by that? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This is obviously an issue that was going on at that time. And it's not really something relevant to anything we're experiencing right now. So, so don't get thrown off on that. 
or you'll end up creating a center at your church headquarters in, oh, I don't know, say Salt Lake City, where there's genealogical resource that, research that goes back generation after generation so that people can be baptized for the dead. That's where that comes from. That's a strange one. But I think it was related to a local issue at the time. And so we don't really have context for it. And we don't really need to waste our time with it because it's really not a part of the larger argument that he's making here. He's talking about the reality of resurrection. So I don't see Paul as, as necessarily using the example to say we should be baptized for the dead, but rather I think he's using that practice of an example of how central to the faith resurrection must be. We've got to keep it central in our minds. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus my Lord, uh, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So this is a fascinating statement by Paul. He's actually tapping here into some Greek philosophy here, touching on the Epicurean or even the hedonistic philosophy that says, if this life is all there is, then let's have as much fun as we can because, I mean, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? But he's saying, no, don't take that perspective. He goes on, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. What he's saying here is if you get into that kind of mentality, your behavior will not be consistent with someone who is living according to the teaching of Jesus. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So he's going on here and he's saying, he's saying, don't, don't get into these crazy philosophies. Stay with the teachings of Jesus, live according to the teachings of Jesus, and live with an understanding that beyond this life is an eternal life through Jesus. So there are always implications with that eternal reality and our lives here and now. But now Paul's going to move on from this, and he's going to address the how of resurrection, or at least he's sort of going to address it. He's going to address it figuratively. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed his own body. So, so Paul here is, is using the reality of the custom that when someone dies, we bury them in the ground, as using that, connecting it uh, symbolically with the concept of planting a seed. And you take this seed, and it doesn't look like a plant, and you put it in the ground, and you leave it there, and then somehow it turns into a plant. So he's using this image that what we put in the ground 
is not necessarily exactly what comes at the resurrection. Uh, verse, verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is, is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. So what we bury is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now I find great hope in these words. Primarily because I have begun to see how as the years go by the body breaks down. How weakness begins to overtake strength. Just one of the things I've noticed as I've gotten older. I got a little cut here on my hand. I was wrestling with the cat. Um, I won, but he did get his licks in. It doesn't heal as fast as it used to. You know, when I was really young and I got a little cut, a couple days later, it was gone. They hang around a little longer now. Maybe you've noticed that. I, I've noticed that, that I'm a little more stiff than I used to be. Putting on shoes is, is it's not the easy game it was when I was a child. It's a decision now. And it has to be worked up to. I'm not as quick as I once was, either, either mentally or physically. There's a reason that people play sports up until they're about 30, and then they are no longer professional athletes. It's not because they want to quit. They're not as good anymore. It's a reality. But what this is telling us is that as we get older and older, as we break down more and more, as more and more weaknesses appear, yes, that is reality now. But if we reach that point where our life ends and we are laid in the ground, we are not going to rise in weakness. We will rise in power. The body that is laid in weakness will come back in strength. It may be sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It may be perishable when we lay it down, but it will be imperishable when Jesus raises us up. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So we inherit initial life from the first Adam. But from the second Adam, that being Jesus, we inherit eternal life. So it is from our parents that we get our initial life. But it is from Jesus 
that we get eternal life. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You will bear the image of Jesus. Right now, we're still living in the image of Adam. But when Jesus comes again, we will be raised to be like him. It's a powerful promise. And it is a strong reason for us to be thankful today, even if you haven't felt the implications of age. But particularly if you have, Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You see, even those who are alive and remain when Jesus comes again, even those who are alive when he comes must undergo transformation. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Then the perishable puts on the imperishable, or when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But now here's our key text for today. And here's our link to Thanksgiving. Verse 57 but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, you can't win the victory over death. You can eat nothing but perfect food. You can eat the perfect amount of it. You can do every little bit of exercise. You can get every little hour of sleep you're supposed to get. And, and yeah, that'll preserve you, but you're not going to make 150, I'll tell you that right now. I don't care what you do. We can't win this on our own. Now, we can do the best we can, we can make the most of it, and let's do that because health is a part of the gift that God gives us. Let's make those good choices. Let's make everything of this life we can. But never forget, it is only through the reality of Jesus that we will ever gain the victory over that one enemy we can't overcome. He overcame it for us, and he will give us that victory. Thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing some songs. But here's the verse that comes next, the last verse of this chapter, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters. So this is the big therefore. You know, after we've been through this whole theological discussion, we've we chased a couple squirrels along the way, we've done everything. We're at the end of what Paul wanted to tell us. He's assured us, give thanks to God because the victory over death is there. Put your confidence in the reality of the resurrection. Don't just take on the trappings of the faith. Hang on to the core. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The forgiveness of sin. The promise of resurrection and eternal life. These things are central to it. Hang on to these things. But here's the therefore. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So sometimes feel like, why am I doing all of this? We're doing it for the Lord. We're making the world a better place. We're telling people about Jesus. We're using our energies for the purpose that God has placed us on the earth. And it is not in vain. Your life matters. Everything you do matters. It's a testimony to Jesus. It's a testimony to his love and grace. Every little good thing you can do, every nice thing that you build, every lovely picture that you paint, every kind word that you say, none of it is in vain. Because yes, we will get old and our bodies will break down or possibly disease will strike us or possibly there'll be an accident. We don't know. But it's not in vain. Because everything we've done has made a difference. And God has, through Jesus Christ, promised us a resurrection to eternal life. So don't lose heart. There is a way for us to go. There is hope. So as we enter this season of feasting where we start with giving thanks to God for the goodness that he's given us and we move from that into, into the, the commemoration and remembrance of the birth of Jesus when he came to be one of us. Let us enter into this season with thankful hearts. Yes, we have challenges. Yes, there are difficulties. Yes, we confront many challenges and, and, and sadnesses. But our labor is not in vain. For God has, through Jesus, made a way.